you're looking to change things up in your classroom. You'd like to see more student participation and interest, or you really need a better way to tap into each student's individual abilities. Maybe you're happy with everything in your classroom and you're just that teacher who will stop at nothing to provide the very best opportunities for your students so you're always open to hear more good news. Well, let me personally welcome you to the Student-Centered Science Teacher Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Carosis. I'm a secondary science teacher with 11 years experience teaching at-risk students in a distance learning cyber model. And yet, I've realized success in my efforts to plan for and execute student-centered learning. See, I believe that a science teacher's job goes beyond transferring specific content knowledge. Rather, I believe our duty is to prepare students for life beyond our walls, to help develop them into informed, active members of society who can confidently make all kinds of decisions. So on this podcast, our discussions will focus on strategies to promote active learning in the classroom and their outcomes, as well as creating and nurturing a culture that enables students to take ownership of their learning by planning next steps and implementing our feedback. Here, we believe that our classrooms are learning laboratories, not just for students, but also for teachers. You'll always get encouragement to keep on experimenting because what you do and how you do it matters. Let's jump into today's topic. For the last month, I've been discussing portions of the text, Visible Learning in Science, what works best to optimize student learning. Actually, I didn't get any further than page 20 in my review of the ideas presented in that text that were most transformative for me in my teaching practice. To recap, or if you're new here, in episode two, I presented the ideal of visible learning. This notion that learning doesn't have to be visible or apparent or obvious, only to the teacher who's been trained to be diagnostic in their instructional efforts. Instead, it plants the seed that when active learning is planned for, students also recognize when they're learning, how they're learning, and how to optimize their learning. For me, this idea was groundbreaking, totally instrumental in encouraging me to challenge my students to do more, more than act as sponges to absorb this information I'm just throwing at them. Then in episode three, we learned about effect size as an indicator of effective instructional strategies. According to the authors of Visible Learning, An instructional strategy with an effect size of 0.4 produces one year of learning. Those with effect sizes below 0.4 produce less than one year worth of learning. And those above 0.4 are capable of producing multiple years worth of learning. Most of us are thrilled to have students score proficient on their annual assessments or even on a summative unit test. But multiple years worth of learning? Like... Did you even know that existed, that that could be accomplished? Isn't that what we want to be going after? Of course it is. So, aha moment, right? In episode number three, I listed for you a series of strategies with effect sizes far above that standard 0.4 value, 
including teacher clarity of expectations at 0.575, sorry, 0.75. And student expectations of self. That's right, students' expectations of themselves, 1.44. Real-time teacher feedback, 1.13. Hold the phone, you heard that right. Strategies with an effect size as high as 1.1, 1.4, this constitutes, according to the authors, more than three years worth of learning. Okay, I don't know about you, but I never thought of some of these as strategies in my classroom. In my mind and my training, examples of, quote, strategies were things like think, pair, share, and various types of lesson planning. For me, this is another aha moment, another of those light bulb, red flag moments. Here, there are basic fundamental decisions we can make and planning we can do that will drastically affect student learning. As an admitted sometimes control freak, I was completely excited about this. That's not to mention that these, quote, strategies related to setting forth expectations and providing feedback are all completely relevant, pretty foundational, and understandably absolutely necessary to students' active learning in whatever form or specific lesson structure it might be incorporated into. Now, most recently, last week, episode four, I shared with you what has been worth its weight in gold for me. That's the visible learning approach to differentiation. And if you have not yet listened to that episode and you are one of those teachers who has that thought bubble growing above your head with this long string of super big, bold question marks in it every time someone says the word differentiate to you, stop this episode right now and get there and listen to that before moving on. I'll be here when you get back. That approach to differentiation has been the only one that's ever made any sense to me. In fact, all the training I've received on differentiation always presented a lot about what it is and why I should do it, but not how to do it or what it looks like when it's done. That's not to mention that differentiation comes in three flavors, right? Not our super favorite flavors like chocolate, vanilla, strawberry, those are mine, ice cream, yum, but content, process, and product differentiation. Yikes, that's all I have to say. It was always so big for me, dare I say too big for me. And since I was doing a lot of lecture and encouraging a lot of note-taking, I just was like, what is there to differentiate? How do I lecture differently? How do they take notes differently? But this approach is entirely about what the students are charged with doing. How many things they're tasked with to accomplish a goal. And how thought-provoking or challenging those tasks might be. Well, once active student-centered lessons are planned, This, differentiation, becomes an absolute no-brainer. And I think that pretty much catches us up to today, 
where I am stopping talking about research and visible learning. I don't want to be your source who's constantly citing a grad school professor's perspective or grad school texts or some super sophisticated new approach. I want you to listen to this podcast and share in my community because I have used and I continue to use the research to realize positive outcomes. I can share with you which research-based ideas I've made my own and how they worked for me. And I'd love, love, love you to do the same. Don't forget that our Lab in Every Lesson community is open and completely free for you to do just that. You can find it at community.labineverylesson.com. Last week, in fact, I gave you a differentiation challenge and encouraged you to post your results in the community. I haven't actually seen any outcomes of that yet, but I trust they're on their way. I'm looking forward to it. Anyway, research is where it's at, right? We learn a lot from what our education researchers share with us about learning theory. But dare I suggest that as teachers, the boots on the ground, we know the most about best practices? After all, research is just an idea if it's not implemented and refined in actual classrooms. That's what I'd like to spend the remainder of this episode on today. How I took those first 20 pages of the visible learning text and allowed them to form the foundation of the lab in every lesson chemistry curriculum I've prepared. So, if you'll indulge me in a little visualization exercise, because this is actually what I did to determine how is it going to put those few simple, visible learning ideas into action. I can see it now, you know, I'm like laying on my gravity-defying lounge chair outside, having just, you know, closed, I don't know what chapter of that book. And, you know, I don't know about you, but when I read, I kind of have to just take a break and absorb it all and kind of marinate on it, and so I did, and, and it went something like this. So, close your eyes, get comfy, kick your feet up, or just, you know, if you're washing the dishes or taking a walk, can't close your eyes probably, but you can still focus. That's all we have to do. So imagine you are a teacher passing by a classroom, or let's just say you're maybe a principal or a parent walking the halls. You're someone walking through a school. When you walk past a classroom led by a teacher, okay, led by a teacher, where he or she is using digital slides or manipulatives or demonstrations. I mean, I'm a chemistry teacher, right? Students look forward to boom, bang, (laughs) explosions in chemistry. Got to do those demonstrations. All that's happening at the front of the room to narrate a conceptual story to students. What do you see the students doing? This teacher is trained in all sorts of taxonomies and relies heavily on instructional verbs related to Webb's depth of knowledge in an effort to continually encourage students to go deeper in their understanding. So the teacher might be on the board listing items, calculating some facts, some values, some properties. Maybe they're graphing some data. Maybe they're classifying objects or materials or uh, descriptors. Maybe they're organizing 
um, you know, sequentially processes. I mean, they're problem solving, all these active verbs. But my question to you in this picture you see is what are the students doing? Make a note of that. Now, imagine the next classroom you walk by. You know, you know, la-di-da, walking through the school. And that's the first classroom you see. Teacher-led. Now the next classroom you walk by looks so different. In this classroom, the teacher has focused all those visible learning ideas and a list of expectations has been very clearly presented on the board for the students to see. In fact, on the board, there are a few different avenues students can take to meet or exceed that same list of expectations. Yet the teacher isn't at the front of the room at all. He or she is walking around, talking to individual students or small groups. Maybe that teacher is even standing off to the side, just observing the students. Clearly, the teacher is trusting them or challenging them to take some ownership of their learning. In this scenario, what do you see those students doing? You got that? <laughs> it's all there. As I said, this is the exact image I envisioned when I marinated on these concepts presented in only the first few pages of Visible Learning. The first of those scenarios resembled how I had been teaching for nine years. The second of those scenarios reflected my new goals for the next year and for the remainder of my tenure as a teacher. These goals included collecting student artifacts, enhancing rigor, and fostering growth mindset. I realized that student-centered learning didn't have to be difficult for me. After all, I had been teaching for nine years when I made the switch. I had already done the heavy lifting of planning to make learning interesting. I had boatloads of visuals, videos, manipulatives, and models for students to work with. I did lots and lots of demonstrations for the students using technology-based simulations. Remember, I'm a cyber school teacher in a distance learning model. I just rarely asked students to use those resources to learn. Once a month or once per unit, our team assigned a lab, quote lab, which relied upon web-based technology apps because that's what we have access to. I simply said to myself, in light of this visualization that I did, why do, quote, labs, these activities where students are charged with exploring to learn something new and expressing what they've learned, why are they relegated to such infrequency? Why aren't I doing this every single day? Especially since I teach chemistry, which is the study of what we cannot see. To understand what we can see. And that's when the lab in every lesson was born. Now, this approach isn't to be confused with what is commonly referred to as a flipped classroom. The flipped classroom, from my perspective, puts the onus on the student for isolated activity outside the classroom. My approach just flips the responsibilities during class time. Students practice mastering DOK verbs 
and the teacher listens and responds accordingly. During the time they work, I'm, as teacher, able to guide students, learn about their unique areas of struggle, and support them through both the academic and emotional parts of learning complex material. And if you're out there thinking (laughs) learning is not an emotional process, then it must have been really easy for you growing up. But I work with a group of at-risk learners, many of whom are not prepared to take chemistry. I mean, documentedly not prepared to take chemistry. And they want so badly to succeed. But it's hard. Trust me, there is an emotional aspect to learning. But this whole thing I'm describing to you, what this looks like, how it feels, there's lots of different ways I can describe it. I could simplify it supremely by saying it's kind of like being a TV show host. Think Ryan Seacrest of American Idol fame. We've got Terry Crews from America's Got Talent. Or even, hey, I'm an 80s baby, even Kermit the Frog from The Muppet Show. Well, they're all stars in their own right, and we might tune in to see them, they're not the main attraction. Like those hosts, we as teachers would create a schedule for our students. Like those hosts, we would line up the acts, or in our case, the activities. And just like those hosts, we're going to host our students as they showcase their abilities. In my interpretation of a student-centered classroom, the students and their work is the main attraction. And while this may sound super simple, execution did take some more careful thought. I'll spend my next several podcast episodes highlighting various portions of the lab and every lesson approach to planning for student-centered learning. But if you just can't wait, I've prepared a guide for you to save and refer to as you plan your own student-centered active learning classroom lessons. It's called Five Elements to an Effective Interactive Science Lesson for Student-Centered Learning. It contains the exact formula I use to plan and prepare my chemistry lessons for virtual delivery. And it could be used for traditional face-to-face delivery as well. In fact, I would most certainly use it myself if or when I might decide to leave my cyber charter school in favor of a traditional brick and mortar model. These five pages describe what is in each of my interactive science lessons, but also how you can build them yourself. Since my passion is in helping all middle school science teachers, high school science teachers and beyond, not just those teaching chemistry or physical science, which is my specialty. You can download this resource at www.labineverylesson.com slash five elements. That's the number five elements. And of course, I'd encourage you to send me your ideas and questions directly via email at lisa, L-I-S-A, at labineverylesson.com or post them publicly in our community at community.labineverylesson.com Until next time, keep experimenting because what you do and how you do it matters.